My name's Major General Alistair Bruce and I'm the Governor of Edinburgh Castle. And I love Army at the Fringe. And why? Because in this sort of space, they bring the most amazing stories to life. Just now, I have watched Mali, a story about a troubled part of Africa. And I've never even been there and I find it really mesmerizing. So for you, in the American Scottish Society, please find time to come and see what they're doing here. You will be amazed. I am so delighted that this week we're going to be in conversation with Anthony Alderson, who is the director of the Pleasant Theatre Trust, in, uh, which is a key partner to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, based in Edinburgh and also down in London. So this morning, good morning to you, Anthony. Thank you very much. And lovely to be here. Um, Anthony, it's you must be so glad when you saw the calendar change to 2023. 2022 must have been, you, we were re-emerging from this pandemic and it was a challenge, but what a great year you had. Oh, I I can't tell you how, so I've got through last year was 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 a feat in itself, actually. I mean, I I I am um, the most unbelievable number of challenges in doing it. But I have such a wonderful team of people that they really rose to it. And and I mean, a few a few casualties along the way, but actually we put on a festival and we did all right. Um, I mean, in 2020 we didn't have one at all. In 2021 it was tiny. And then 2022, we almost came back to sort of full steam. But this year, it really does feel like we're sort of back. We're back with a with a real program of fantastic work. And I'm really excited about it. But when you say you're not just doing one venue, you are doing three large, big central venues for the Fringe with 27 venues across the three hubs. Yeah, and um, you put on near on well two hundred and sixty shows. Is it this year a day? Yeah, yeah. I know it, <laughs> it's absolute madness. Um, but yes, the courtyard, the famous Pleasance Courtyard, which I think has become one of the most iconic sort of venues on the fringe, because it feels like it's been sort of carved out of old Edinburgh, um, and it's cobbled and it's rather beautiful. And and um, I mean it it it. The rest of the year, it's a rather sort of tired looking car park, um, but it transforms into this absolute hub. And we we, we, we took a, a sort of leaf out of sort of Walt Disney's book in a little way, which is that the moment you cross that threshold through the archway into the courtyard, you are given complete permission to be somewhere else. And it is the most, it is, I challenge anyone to not want to be there in August. It is the most extraordinary atmosphere. And, and it's full of, Creative, brilliant, clever artists trying to, you know, find their way and put on great work. Can we talk about a, a few of the things you're excited about? Maybe if we're, um, as you brought musicals up first, let's delve in there. Um, you, what are the sort of top three, top five that you have as of things that are coming? Um, I think, well, talking of musicals, first of all, we run a, um, a funding scheme called the Charlie Hartill Fund, which has been going for, I think, 17, gosh, even longer, 18 years now, I think. Um, and what we do is we do a showcase in London, our theatre in London. We, we, we had about 100 applications this year, and we then pick one show that we are going to fully fund. Well, this year, the quality was so big and so good that we... Um, 
we picked two. Um, one is a musical called Public, which is um, it's sort of folk music, um, country folk music. I mean, really, really cleverly composed. The singing and the songs are wonderful. Um, and it's about five people trapped in a gender neutral toilet for an hour as they try and work out all the issues that surround um, the sort of culture wars that we're having um, across all of our societies at the moment to do with trans, to do with all of those identities and, and so on, and all the difficulties with it and, and, and what comes with cancel culture and so on. So it's a really, it's a wonderful way and it's funny, it's charming, it's really, really, really fun. Um, and very clever. Um, so that's one piece. We're doing a lovely piece from a company um, from Glasgow, which is sort of the history of Edinburgh and its musical called Bampots. And, and it's a brilliant. And that was this the is other another. Winner. This is this has also come through the Charlie Hartill Fund, um, and it's the history of Scotland or everything that you would find, all the sort of cliches of Scotland sort of squished into one very, very funny musical show. And it's a, for anyone visiting Scotland for the first time, it's a brilliant place to start because it just, it's irreverent and gorgeous and, and just lovely. And they're students and they're, it's just brilliant. Really funny, really funny. Where are they students from? Um, from all over. Um, from all over Scotland, they're a company who've come together, but I think predominantly Glasgow, um, but they've come from all over, all over Scotland. Um, so a fantastic piece, piece of work. Um, another piece, another musical piece, we're doing Tony Blair, the rock opera, um, which is the political life of um, Tony Blair, written by a very famous comic in this country called Harry Hill. Um, who has put together this rock opera and is in one of our biggest spaces. And I think it's going to be great. I haven't seen it yet. It's it's touring the UK at the moment and getting brilliant reviews. And then you always have, apart from the comedy and the music and everything, you have some usually some outstanding key shows. Last year, the Ukrainian ballet was so fantastic and moving. Um, so this year... Um, would that be Dark Noon? Yeah, I think that's probably our biggest show. And it's very unusual for us because it's set almost in, it's set in Travis. There are 200 seats on stage. Um, this vast stage, which is 16 metres by 10 metres. And it's a great big sort of sandpit, if you like. And it is the story of North America told through the eyes of seven South African. I came to the wild, wild west to live by my own rules, to live out my potential and experience an adventure. The land of America is
then at the very end, the last sort of five minutes, it comes to a sort of crashing halt. And you then understand that actually these people are talking about how Europe has spread violence across so much of the world, because actually what they're really mirroring is their own lives um, through their experiences of apartheid and what happened in South Africa and what continues to happen in South Africa. So we see this extraordinary um, story of North America, but really what it mirrors is, is something very similar that's happened in other parts of the world, which has really been proliferated by by European um, by European nations, whether that's the UK and the imperial sort of you know frontiers of 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 the British, the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Germans, it was coming out of all of uh, all of Europe, um, and it's a really really phenomenal piece of work. It's extremely um, explosive and and really dynamic and a very different form of theatre because. There are five cameras on stage. A lot of it is filmed. You're seeing it on screens. You're seeing some of it, uh, you know, you're sitting in one seat and then suddenly they build a church in front of you. And so you might have to move or you might have to look at, watch it through the screen. It's a really fascinating piece of work. And it's I would describe it as, as where theatre is now moving, which is event theatre. This is a real event. Um, and it's an extraordinary piece of work. And now I'm delighted that I'm able to finally catch up with the Hebridean baker, who I had the pleasure of meeting and working with over Tartan Week this year. Uh, we were able to bring the, uh, the musical side of our baker to life at the Bryant Park, but I'm going to let him tell us about that in a moment. But welcome and thank you for joining us today and bringing us up to date on all things you are doing. Well, Falja, Camilla, great to be in touch again. And you're right, what a day we had in Bryan Park. The sun was shining. I don't know if there was ever so many kilts in one square, uh, <laughs> or a square foot of New York uh, ever. And Gaelic tunes, bagpipes, everything. What, what a treat it was. Well, we're delighted you were a part of it. And hopefully, because your love of Gaelic, the mod, and all those other sides of your life um, are something that I am looking forward to seeing you back in New York and taking part in the events of the parade, but also coming over to Brant Park because we have such a wonderful time there. But let's turn everything back a bit. You, you have a deep, passionate love of where you grew up, of the islands of Harris and Lewis and the Hebridean Islands. Could you tell us about your early life and how that led you on this path of now being the Hebridean baker? Oh, well, as you say, Camilla, it is a really special place. And to put it into context, um, where, where I'm from in the Isle of Lewis, which is a wee village called Cremoir, which is the the Gaelic for a big cow. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm nearer to the south coast of Iceland than I am the south coast of England. You know, it really is uh, a kind of northerly island. Um, and it was a very special and idyllic uh, upbringing. My father was a, a fisherman, a trawler fisherman. My mother was a Harris Tweed weaver. Um, and myself and my three, three brothers, uh, as you'd imagine in, in such a... a a trusted place, uh, just the the rains and runs of the of the village to do what we wanted. 
Um, but central to, to all that was um, the, the language of Gaelic, which was the, the first language of the home. Um, and of course, food as well. You know, it, it played such a central part in, in family life. And um, I think my passion for traditional recipes and the stories of the islands very much came from my mother, but particularly my aunts as well. My aunt Belak, who uh, features in my first book, actually, she's just about to turn 95, still bakes every day. Her husband, Mordo, at 96, still happily has his cluty dumpling uh, and pancakes <laughs> for his afternoon tea. So I think the secret to a long life is definitely Hebridean recipes. <laughs> and clotted cream by the sounds of it as well. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love your recipe books. I, I, they're not recipe books, that's cookbooks. They're not at all. They're, they're a story of the islands, as you say, telling a story to the recipes that are within it. And it's really been a phenomena. So you're now working, we had such a time trying to catch up with you this week, because you're working on your third book. But that's right. Can, yeah. Can you give us an insight into that first book and how it took off? Because you are the best-selling cookbook, Scottish cookbook. You know, you really are quite the media star. It has been wonderful. And it all started so innocently, to be honest with you. Um, I just really wanted to share with others on the island to make sure that People didn't forget our traditional recipes and stories, never imagining they might resonate across the world. And um, it actually, one of the first things that happened, uh, Camilla, you might know the, the, the ladies magazine, Elle, Elle magazine yes, in America. Yeah. And uh, the columnist in Elle magazine, a lady called Rose, um, based in New York, she wrote her column in the magazine saying, it was when um, our old pal, Mr. Trump, was going to ban TikTok, if you remember that a few years back. And uh, she said, the only thing I'll miss about TikTok is the Hebridean baker. And I was totally unaware of this, that she had written this column. She never contacted me. But I remember waking up the next morning. Now, I had made, um, I think it was some traditional griddle pancakes uh, or griddle scones the day before and made a video about it. I woke up the next morning to, I think, 400,000 people had watched this video overnight. And I was like, well, they were good scones, but I don't know if they were that good. Then the next day, more and tens of thousands of followers. And suddenly I realized that uh, my stories and recipes were starting to resonate throughout North America. And I still always wonder what it was. Was it just the, the storylines I was trying to create or the, the escapism as well? But they well, the certainly visuals, were resonating. The visuals are yeah. fabulous. Because, I, I mean, they really are, you must be also a very good photographer, because when you were starting <laughs> off with all this, the, the photography and the film is so important. Um, but that you bring the magic of the island there. And I think, and also your dog. <laughs> well, good point, Camilla. To be fair, um, I think I generally get in the way of Shoris, my West Highland uh, terrier, a global stardom with my recipes. Uh, <laughs> somebody once asked me, uh, shouldn't Shoris have his own 
social media and I was like no way because uh, nobody <laughs> would ever come to see mine anymore uh, but yes Shortest is an absolute star but you're right the landscapes culture and just our identity because you know Camilla um, the Outer Hebrides we are very proudly Scottish but we are a wee bit different you know mm -hmm. and I, I wanted to celebrate both sides of that our Scottish our Scottishness but our uniqueness as well. The reason why I encourage folk when they visit to take that ferry, you know, over the Minch to the Hebrides because they're going to experience things they could never experience somewhere else. A leading activist within the textile and tartan world and fashion world. And um, I felt it was really important, Chris, that we talked to you today in regard to the wonderful VNA exhibit that has opened in Dundee, Tartan, as who better to give us an insight into this than you. So over to you for a few minutes to talk to us a little bit about the exhibit. Well, thank you for such an amazing introduction, Camilla. Um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of the American Scottish Foundation and the work you do, Camilla. Um, it's a really important, um, you know, uh, cross-country platform, which is um, uh, extremely It's one of the things that really comes through from V&A Dundee's Tartan. Uh, you know, my first interaction with the cloth, obviously just growing up, you know of it, but uh, when I started working in the industry about 25 years ago, um, you discover, you know, all the ins and outs and the intricacies of it. And I think one of the things that V&A Dundee have really, really managed to do, um, apart from the beautiful plays, um, they've they've really thought deep about some of the exhibits. For example, Olubi Thomas, um, Scottish designer, now lives in London, worked with a Glasgow-based weaving studio, Viva, um, which is run by Christopher McAvoy and Chantal Allen um, on creating a new tartan, which actually reflects um, his kind of, uh, it's called Intersectional Family, and it's in green and white, uh, which is based on both the Nigerian flag and Glasgow Celtic Football Club. Um, and I think the installation they involved a designer called Jolene Guthrie, who is a knitwear designer that's been in our uh, annual Scottish Fashion Festival that we do with V&A Dundee. Um, and I think that for me was one of the exhibits that just really summed up the thought that had gone into the exhibition. You know, you've got local contemporary designers uh, working together um, with designers who are now, you know, working in London to do uh, a, a piece, and that was just for one piece that's in this fantastic show. I mean, and there's 300. So all of that was just around one piece. And there are three, you know, there's 299 other pieces to look at. So I think that for me kind of encapsulates how exciting it is, um, as well as the perspective, you know, that's a contemporary piece. And then we've got things like the Glen Affric Tartan, which is proved to be, you know, there was a piece of scientific research done around that. And that's a piece of tartan that was unearthed in a peat bog about 40 years ago. Um, that's, the and, piece, that's the oldest piece of tartan that's known, isn't in it? In the world. 
That's right. Which comes from the original plaid. You know, we talk about plaid in America as well. Hey, and um, that was the one of the original names for what's now known as tartan. And plaid actually was part of um, it's a language. You know, you know how language changes Gaelic and, and Scots and, and English. Um, but plaid was a sort of a word that described a piece of cloth that you would wear that you during the day that you would perhaps sleep on at night and that you would use to carry things in as well. Um, and that was, you know, part of the origins of what became tartan. And obviously you have the different um, uh, ways that it's developed over the centuries, including the infamous book, of course, that was put together, which assigned clan names and things to certain colours. Um, so I think, I yeah, think to cover all that is amazing. Well, I think the other thing that's about tartan is the story that each tartan tells. And I don't know if everybody understands that. It was very much that when, when I was growing up that you wore your tartan of your family, clan, or what you associated to. But now people play with it. And, yeah. they, and they say, well, today Absolutely. I'll wear a lilac tartan with those, because it's spring or something. They don't feel they now can enjoy different tartans that are a fashion statement yeah absolutely and i think it's it's um it was really interesting you know within the exhibition you are able to look at you know tartan that was specific to um uh military groups for example um, there's also a film from 1745, the you know, which was the um, BAFTA-winning film about um, the tartan in slavery. Um, but the fast forward, and you have the punk, you have Westwood, you have this um, adoption wholeheartedly by counterculture of this uh, incredible fabric. Um, and yeah, I mean, I remember. Uh, you know, when I was a teenager, my first purchase that was non-school uniform was a pair of tartan DMs. Um, and, you know, neon tartan was a thing as well. And I think that it's, it's a fabric that's come to mean, um, you know, rebellion in a lot of different ways. And it's simultaneously been used, as I say, by military people and by you know, the royals, for example, um, Kinlock Anderson, who hold the royal warrant for Tartan that I used to work for in Scotland. Um, and they created a V&A Dundee Tartan specifically for this as well. Um, and you, you know, people are able to register through the Scottish Tartans Authority. They can create their own and things like this. And I think people are having fun with it again as well. You need me, let this Give me a problem, I'll solve it. Give me a future, I'll see it. Give me a reason, give me a reason not to change the world. Give me a page and I'll quill it. Give me a stage and I'll fill it. Give me a reason, give me a reason not to change the world. I'm William Cullen, and here's my Who's on the 
the phone, it's A.G. Bell calling to say, Make your toes and bombs. You know you want me. So let my license lose.